the rise of space millennials, and the mystery of the rogue planets. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. There's a new generation leading the charge when it comes to space exploration. Millennials, 20 and 30 year olds are entering the workforce and academia, driving innovation and pushing humanity farther into the solar system. So what's motivating these millennials, and what's different from the group of folks that came before them? We'll chat with author Laura Forsick about her new book, Rise of the Space Age Millennials. Then, can planets exist outside the orbit of a star? We'll talk with our panel of experts about the fascinating observations of rogue planets, how they escape the gravity of their host star, and how do we spot them? That's ahead on Are We There Yet? But first, let's take a look at the latest space stories making headlines. Coronavirus is starting to have an impact on space exploration. Two Russian cosmonauts and an American astronaut are set to launch to the space station next month. NASA astronaut Chris Cassidy says the agencies are keeping a watchful eye on the health of the trio before launch. Uh, we are taking our space flight preparation very seriously, and, the, and, the, and what goes along with that is our quarantine and our safety precautions. So... Um, we're ready to go. We are healthy. We've been tested uh, very well with the medical teams, and uh, we just uh, are thinking with all the people in the world. Uh, we'll be watching from space, and we're very curious to, uh, to come home in October and see what the world looks like. The three are scheduled to launch on a Russian Soyuz in April. NASA has instructed all of its centers to work remotely to prevent the spread of the virus and is only allowing mission-critical personnel on site. That means work on major NASA projects like the testing of the SLS rocket core stage in Mississippi and the assembly of the James Webb Space Telescope have slowed. The launch of SpaceX's first crewed capsule is now slated for sometime in May. You can find these stories and more on our website, wmfe.org space. And give me a follow on Twitter for the latest space news. I'm at SpaceBrendan. A new generation is leading the charge on space exploration. That'd be millennials. 20- and 30-year-olds are entering the workforce and academia, driving the innovation and pushing humanity farther into the solar system. So what's motivating these millennials, and what's different from the group of folks that came before them? Well, joining us via Skype is author Laura Forsick. Her new book is called Rise of the Space Age Millennials. Laura, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for having me on. So let's let's start with an easy question. What what inspired you to write this book? A few years back, I got annoyed, let's say, about all the negative press that millennials got. It it seemed like millennials were getting so many negative stereotypes that didn't hold true to my experience. So I decided that I would reach out to some of the other millennials I knew who either were working in the space industry already or were planning to or studying to work in space. And it ended up being over 100 interviews, and um, it, it really changed the dynamic of how I thought that the topic would be. Um, millennials, for some for, for some stereotypes, met them, but for most stereotypes did not. And it ended up being a very positive outlook on the millennial generation. And as a millennial myself, I'd like to thank you for uh, getting rid of some of those negative stereotypes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Laura, what did you find? You said there's 100 interviews in this book. Um, you know, what was kind of the through line that you learned from uh, speaking with all of these millennials in, in the space industry? 
Well, one thing to keep in mind is that we're not all the same, of course. So I did a wide range of millennial interviews. Some of them were undergraduates in, in university, and some of them were CEOs of their own companies. Um, so millennials right now are in their 20s and 30s, and it's it's a wide range of experiences. And although I, I mainly kept to the United States, I did try to cover some uh, perspectives outside of the United States and um, backgrounds ranging from scientists and engineers engineers to communicators and educators. So very diverse group of people. Um, and we're, we don't all think the same. But one thing that was the same is that we were all raised in similar ways with the technology that had come about over the past couple of decades. Um, for example, smartphones and the increasing use of the internet so that we are more interconnected than usual. And that lends to a um, somewhat unified perspective of the world where most millennials don't see too many distinctions between countries, which I thought was an interesting perspective when it comes to geopolitics and the way that space is usually seen, especially in, in older generations, as a geopolitical advantage. And um, you still hear the rhetoric in politicians speaking about America first, American leadership in space, whereas um, millennials, especially millennials outside of the United States, in in places like Europe where they're used to collaborating, they don't really hold on to that kind of rhetoric. They they feel a much more uh, borderless perspective, which is something that some people in the um, interviews actually indicated would be an increasing motivation for getting the masses into space. Let's say with suborbital spaceflight, if that ever comes to be, where we have suborbital spaceflight for the masses, whether it comes to be in the next decade or several decades from now, that'll really change the perspective of how people see the world. And I want to talk about that technology in a bit, but I, I want to just kind of, um, you know, broaden my net here a bit. What is actually inspiring the interview subjects you had to even get involved in, you know, a space master's program or to start a, their own space company? What got their foot in the door to begin with? I guess what I'm asking is, what was that initial spark of inspiration for them? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked. That's my whole first chapter. Um, sort of inspired by last year's celebrations of the 50th anniversary of Apollo, where so many of the conversations were looking back at what, inspi what inspired the Apollo generation. Um, but Millennials were not born during Apollo. Um, we didn't have that sort of firsthand experience of that spark of humans landing on another planet. Um, so what really got millennials interested, for the most part, was the quote-unquote new space era, um, where you see SpaceX and Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic and, and some of these other companies really coming into play, uh, big players in the past couple of decades. Um, and, and with that are some of the smaller companies, such as um, CubeSat technology that can be launched on small satellites and, and available to um, schools and, and universities around the world for a low cost. And, and all these different ways that people can get involved more now rather than the traditional um, elite of the elite kind of role that astronauts have played in NASA. Now, that doesn't mean that NASA wasn't inspirational to millennials. A lot of millennials that I interviewed talked about NASA and especially the ones that were either working for NASA right now or um, were inspired as children. I, I personally was inspired as a child by NASA. Um, but for the most part, what got people really motivated to work in space 
was the availability and accessibility of new space companies. Yeah, because I'm, I'm thinking back and when we think about the age of millennials, you know, in their early 20s, it's been almost a decade since we've had a human space launch here in the U.S. So U.S. specifically, some of these millennials may not have even seen a human spaceflight launch, right? Yeah, for, for some of the younger ones, um, it, it, all millennials have been around since the International Space Station has been in existence and, and been continuously uh, inhabited. But um, for some millennials, they, they really didn't even experience space shuttle as much as some of the older millennials like myself have. And, and so you're absolutely right. Millennials, um, you know, for some of them, their experiences with spaceflight have been either watching astronauts you know, go go from Russia or or China to space, or um, you know the the rapid reusability of you know these these uh, these newer technology rockets that have not yet brought humans into space. Now that isn't to say that all millennials that I interviewed were inspired by human spaceflight. There was a lot of um, you know the, some of the probes that NASA sends out. So there's definitely different ways that millennials can be inspired. So some people mentioned the the, the uh, Cassini probe and some people mentioned New Horizons to Pluto. Um, and so there's there's definitely different perspectives there. Some people aren't as focused on human spaceflight and really love the fact that we've got rovers on Mars. So all sorts of different reasons why these folks are getting inspired to get their foot in the door in the first place. What do what is their outlook or or their priorities in space exploration going forward. Did you find a through line um, talking to all these people? Yeah, absolutely. Mars, 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 um, which isn't too surprising considering the general public is also very Mars focused. Um, so a lot of the millennials that I interviewed talked about returning humans to the moon and going on to Mars. Um, a lot of the interviews took place during the tail end of the asteroid redirect mission um, where that was still a possibility. So some of them talked about asteroids, but for the most part, a lot of them talked about returning to the moon and going on to Mars. Some of them talked about going on to Mars directly. So that was definitely something that inspired people was the idea of returning humans to the moon and or just going on to Mars. And that shouldn't be too surprising given the, um, you know, the, the ways that we've gone back and forth over the past few decades about how we should move forward in spaceflight. Um, also, a lot of millennials were inspired by the fact that um, soon, hopefully, as <laughs> soon as a relative term, um, the mass population might be able to experience spaceflight. They themselves, a lot of millennials talked about how they personally would like to go into space someday, whether that's through a suborbital spaceflight or a private space station, or or some people even had grand plans for um, some kind of deep space mission that they could go on. Um, and so people really want to have that personal accessibility to space. Talking to some of the folks that are in the the aerospace workforce now, did you uncover that there's this generational divide? Um, I guess what I'm asking is, you know, what makes this sector of the workforce different from others? Do they work different? Do they think different? And do they recognize that there's a difference between them and, and their older colleagues? Yeah, that was a mixed bag. I have a whole chapter dedicated to this idea of millennials being separate in a way from older generations. And for some millennials, they absolutely saw differences and some people did not. Now, I, I made sure in the book to point out that some of them are simply age or stage of life differences, whereas someone who is a university student is going to have a different perspective than someone who has a young family, which is going to have a different perspective from someone who is retiree aged and all their kids are grown. Um, so some of those are, are definitely 
definitely stages of life rather than specific generational. But some of the things that stood out that might be millennial specific are the uses of technology. So the adaptability of new technology, especially the interconnectedness of the way that we communicate. Um, and, and you think you're seeing that even now. So where um, millennials are maybe quicker to adapt to um, remote working and working from home rather than some of the older generations that might be struggling. Another perspective would be um, let's say the ways that we wanna be inclusive. So very important if you look back at who the first astronauts were, um, especially here in the United States, we can talk about how they were um, white men of a certain usually military background. Um, and, and in Russia, it wasn't too different. You know, they, they really focused on um, white males from, from certain perspectives. Um, whereas now we are very focused on being much more inclusive of not just um, gender diversity, diversity and, you know, educational diversity, but also, you know, various backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, geographic backgrounds. Um, so really making sure that we have a, a good perspective of the whole demographic of humanity when we go forward in space. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. We're speaking with Laura Forsick. She's a space policy analyst and the author of the new book, Rise of the Space Age, Millennials. Laura, this is the generation, myself included, that grew up in this incredible technological boom. You spoke about it uh, at the start of our conversation. I wonder if you just kind of expand on how millennials' relationship with technology has really shaped the mindset um, of these people moving forward. Okay, so millennials tend to be more focused on um, communicating with their peers online. And that can be from any country. And, and really, millennials are not focused on what country they are specifically collaborating with. So millennials are very open to an international perspective, whereas the millennials that I interviewed, they are either already communicating and collaborating with or wish to collaborate with international partners, which really makes for a different perspective when you're talking about partnerships in space and going forward and how we might uh, represent humanity as a whole, as a planet, rather than moving forward as individual countries. So millennials have a different perspective shaped on how the technology has shaped our minds, you know, the way that we have communicated since childhood for most of us um, with international partners, even though we, we didn't know it at the time, international friends. Um, and, and now, even now, through social media and through other means of communicating online, we usually don't even think about who we're talking about unless you're in a specific type of workforce where you have to think about it for sensitivity reasons and, and national defense. Um, so those were really the only areas where millennials saw the need to really be focused on protecting privacy and protecting um let's say international borders was in national defense arena, whereas most uh, other ways, scientifically, uh, business collaborations were all seen as open to, you know, international partnerships as a really great way to um, open space to the whole world. For years, we've been trying to promote diversity in these STEM fields. Are we finally starting to see those efforts pay off in this generation? I sure hope so. Um, you know, um, that wasn't something that I specifically focused on in the book, but um, yeah. 
I almost got parody in my interviews where I think it was 60% male and 40% female. And that was with me not trying to very hard. Um, and so you do see a shift where um, inclusivity of various uh, minorities and, and genders is really important to many millennials. Laura Forsick, what are some of the hurdles um, millennials now face in the workforce? At least in the United States, the way that millennials have been raised and put through the educational system makes it that many of us are in debt with um, you know, college student debt um, and in other ways are financially unstable, which makes it a bit more of a challenge when it comes to starting your own company, being an entrepreneur, taking risks, whether they be financial risks or um, career risks. Now, that isn't to say that millennials are risk first. I, I covered that whole chapter on how millennials are actually very willing to take risks when it comes to new technologies and the ways that we operate in space. However, if you're talking about millennials actually moving up in the workforce, being able to um, you know, change the way that we do things, um, it, it's a rare millennial who can afford to take those kinds of risks. Another question is whether or not seniority matters. For some millennials, they commented how older generations really value seniority and being able to pay your dues as you go up in your career. Um, and in fact, it's a stereotype that millennials are really impatient and um, want to advance quickly in their careers. Um, but it's a it's a generational shift there, whether or not we feel that we need to value seniority versus the best person who's good for the job should get the job uh, or promotion or whatever the case may be. Um, so there's definitely differences there in how to perceive the ways that we work in the workforce together. And finally, Laura, what's going to inspire the, the next generation of explorers and folks getting into the space field? Millennials right now are in their 20s and 30s, which means that the younger generation is called Generation Z, and there's no cutoff yet. There's no firm line as to where one generation begins and the other ends. And Generation Z is, is I, I did not interview any, any members of Generation Z, but I, I believe that they will continue to be inspired by what they see in front of them with the changing um, industry and, and how we operate. So not just the, the promises of the future, but how we're actually physically moving forward with all the plans that we intend. To, to create. So whether that is private space flight or whether that is, you know, more of these fantastic NASA missions or whether that is um, finding life out there, whether it's, you know, in our solar system or on an exoplanet. A lot of millennials talked about how that is something that they want to do in their careers is find life in the solar system or elsewhere. And I, I think that Generation Z will just pick that up even more, being so more interconnected, being much more of a generation that is willing to take a different perspective on things. We've been speaking with Laura Forsick. She's a space policy analyst, author, and founder of Astrolytical. She's the author of the new book, Rise of the Space Age Millennials. Laura, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks so much. Still to come, rogue planets. How'd they get kicked out of their planetary systems? Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. Just because we get around You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. Can planets exist outside the orbit of a star? I put that question to our panel of expert scientists from the University of Central Florida. That's Addie Dove, Josh Caldwell, and Jim Cooney for this week's segment of I'd Like to Know. Addie begins the conversation by answering a simple question. 
What is a rogue planet? Rogue planets are planets that do not have a bunch of friends uh, that they hang out with all the time. <laughs> so they went rogue. I know. No, rogue planets are planets that have been, for some reason, ejected from the planetary system in which they formed. Okay. Did um, they do something wrong? Did they? We don't know. Maybe. Um, gravitationally, they clearly did, um, <laughs> because the, so they're they're planets that probably formed around a star, um, and probably with some other planets, and then for some reason got ejected. And part of the reason this can happen is because there's a lot of instability early on in solar mm-hmm. system formation. Things are moving around a little bit in their orbits, and they can sort of give each other little kicks, like when you're on the swing, right? You push. It's called resonance. If you push at the same uh, part each time you're on a swing, you can get higher and higher. Mm-hmm. Same thing can happen with orbits, where if you give little gravitational tugs at the same point, eventually you can sort of get too much energy and you fly off the swing, or in this case, you fly out of the solar system. That's terrifying. But awesome too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, how do you, how do you how do you how do you see these? How, how are how are scientists and astronomers able to observe these rogue planets? I've got to imagine it's really difficult to find them. It is. Normally, the way we see a planet uh, around another star is by the effect that that planet has on the star. So we're really seeing the light of the star, and it's being affected in some way by the the planet orbiting it. So if you've got a planet just drifting around in interstellar space, that's a challenge. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are no starlight shining on them to reflect. They're not gravitationally strongly interacting with any star to make it move around. And they're cool, so they're not emitting much of their own light. Right. So yeah, very hard to find. You you got to hope that you catch one of these that's young enough and big enough so that it's still got enough residual heat from when it formed that it's emitting in the infrared part of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And then some of these new big infrared telescopes that are coming along, like the James Webb Space Telescope, should be able to see some of these. Mm-hmm. There's another super cool detection technique that you just have to be lucky, serendipitous. Yeah. yeah. And I think a lot more of them are discovered this way. So far, yeah. Is by, you know, if you get really lucky and one of them passes in between you and a background star, then Einstein once again uh, comes to our, our whatever. Um, <laughs> and the light from that background star gets warped around the oh. planet. So gravitational lensing. Yeah, it's really the space and time around that planet is warped, and as the light goes through, it, it the, the light appears warped. So this is called yeah gravitational lensing. In this case, micro lensing because mm-hmm. it's a very low mass object that's doing the warping, but that causes a little bit of a change in how bright that star appears in our sky, and we can determine that something was was there. But it's accidental, right? You you can't you can't plan it, right? Because just, you don't know where to huh. look. Ah. Right, exactly. So you're just looking at thousands and thousands of thousands of stars all at the same time and hoping that one of them will go weird. Blip. Mm. Go yeah. blip in the night. Right. So, so you'd be looking at the brightness of some star or stars, and then you'd see a, a, a characteristic change in that brightness, an increase and a decrease, and then back to normal. And that is sort of analogous to if you're in your house and a car drives by at night and there's a, the headlights from that car come through the window just a certain way and you sort of get this flash. You know, there's some okay. sort of uh, optical effect that just happens when the geometry is just right and you get this increase in brightness. Mm-hmm. And by looking at that shape of that brightness change, we can figure out, oh, it was a planet of this size. You can really figure mm-hmm. out exactly how much stuff was there. It sounds almost like how Tess and Kepler do it, right? Looking for the planets to pass in front of a star, but they're not looking at in a particular region, right? Well, Tess and Kepler are really looking at the planet blocking the light from okay. the star that it's orbiting and making it just dimmer because there's something in front of it. This isn't blocking it, it's lensing it. As Jim was saying, the space-time oh, okay. is warped. So it's like moving a magnifying glass in front of the star and you'll see a flash. Yeah, it, it, paradoxically, like, yeah, when, when Kepler... 
Tess and Kepler do it, the, the star gets a little bit dimmer as this planet passes in front. Paradoxically, this one, the stars get a little bit brighter as the planet passes in oh. between us and the star because of this lensing effect. Yeah, some of the light that would have gone off in some other direction gets bent uh-huh. by the gravitational effect of the planet towards us. So we get more of the light from the star than we otherwise would have. But you also mentioned that you can look for these things, looking for these infrared signals mm-hmm. if, they're, if they're warm enough, right? And, and you mentioned some space-based telescopes that can do that. Are, are we kind of going into this new chapter of, of being able to find these rogue planets a little bit easier? Yeah, we hope so. So Josh mentioned that they have to be very warm. So we know that early on when, when planets form, they are pretty warm. It takes a, long, a little while for them to cool down. And especially larger planets tend to stay warm for a lot longer. Um, so if any of those get ejected, they might still have a little bit of their residual heat. And um, we look in the infrared. So James Webb Space Telescope um, will hopefully have the capability to find these types of objects. It'll be in the right part of the spectrum. Um, and it's going to it has a really high collecting power. So it'll be able to see fainter things like this that will sort of be out mm-hmm. there in space. Mm-hmm. And what what's the purpose? How will how will finding these help us better understand our universe? Are they are they a threat to us since we don't know where they are? Space is big and mostly empty, so I would say they're not a threat, but it's gonna, quite possible that our own solar system kicked out some rogue planets. I was saying, you know, yeah. get these gravitational interactions, things get kicked out. Things may have been kicked out of our own solar system, and seeing the numbers and sizes of rogue planets will help us understand planet formation in general, solar system formation in general, the numbers of planets and the different types of planets. Mm-hmm. We're interested in like understanding how unusual or normal our own solar system is because that'll help us know whether or not there are other planets like the Earth out there with people or Vulcans or Klingons. <laughs> so. Yeah, and a lot of the way we, a lot of the ways we can explain the sort of um, other planetary systems we see out there right now, sort of like where the planets are and how they're distributed, is by having some other large planet that was there at some point that maybe gravitationally interacted and got kicked out. So you can like do a lot of orbital calculations and see, okay, well this planet shouldn't be here, but maybe there was another big one that interacted with it and then it got kicked out of its system. So we predict that these things should be happening on a fairly regular basis. So it's helping us understand those statistics a little bit better. Yeah. Do we need to worry about getting kicked out of our solar system? <laughs> no. We're in a pretty we're good stable place. stable now. Yeah. You just, just be careful, though. Okay. Jim, I cut you off. What were you going to say? I was just going to say that it's it's interesting to note that these things are not rare, right? So that yeah. just like Eddie was saying, that, that uh, we think of, I mean, because we're in the infancy of detection of rogue planets, we don't know a lot of, about them. The statistics of them. Yeah. But we're pretty sure there are billions and billions just in our galaxy, right? And mm-hmm. and just how many there are, like, per star, I mean, you know, I've heard estimates anywhere from, like, a quarter per star to 100,000 per star. I'm like, that seems ludicrous. But right. <laughs> a wide range of estimates, but it's it's a lot. And, of course, there are hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy, so that means billions upon billions upon billions of these things out there. So that's pretty cool. But our orbit's nice and circular. Yeah, we're, the, we're good. The other we're planets good. around us are nice and mostly circular, so we're in a pretty stable position. That was Josh Caldwell, Jim Cootie, and Addie Dove. They're physicists at the University of Central Florida, and they host their own podcast called Walk About the Galaxy. You can subscribe to their podcast wherever you listen to this podcast or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. And if you've got a question for our segment, I'd like to know, well, send it in. Shoot me an email at arewetheryet at wmfe.org or drop us a line on any of our social media channels. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Production assistance from Danielle Pryor. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. 
You can find more space news online at wmfe.org slash space. And never miss a show and get bonus content and interviews delivered straight to your phone or smart speaker. You can do that by subscribing to the Are We There Yet podcast on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, or wherever you get your other podcasts. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Stay healthy, and thanks for listening.